for a long period of time. And I'll try to keep them brief. Um, so this is a journey of an aesthete. This is a new podcast. Yes. And I want to say that of all the people I could possibly have on this show, um, I can't think of anybody more um, appropriate or emblematic in terms of what my, my mission is and my project is. Um, because I think I first discovered you, of course, like a lot of people in 1992, right? From your care of the soul. Yes. And when that came out, I believe that was a, um, a revolution in nonfiction writing in the United States. I'll, I'll go uh-huh. so far as to say that. In other words, I think it was um, the writing, the, the beauty of the prose, and the writing was on such a high level. And I, th- I think at that time, I don't think I'd come across anything quite that good. And one of the interesting things about that is that I learned a lot from it. And so then because I encountered that book, that text, which I think is now canonical or should be um, in writing, um, I discovered, of course, Hillman and Blue Fire. And, and, um, and I actually went back and read Dark Eros. And, and wow. So, yeah. And so, so I've hopefully I think I've read everything you've written. So I'm a, I'm a Thomas More completist in that sense. Well, that's great. Thank you. And uh, I think that in a way, even though my show is about the arts and the humanities, um, which I take to be um, fundamental to all of life, and we could talk about that if you want to. I would love to. Yeah, I think that um, you're somebody that gets that, and -hmm. you're someone whose life and work is about that. But if you don't mind um, uh, indulging a a little bit of linear chronology, because um, I have written notes here about your background and, and things about having uh, been a, a monk and, and the priesthood and growing up having a plumber for a dad or just wherever, whatever comes to your mind or whatever your consciousness that you feel be, is a good place to begin. So there's my introduction. So, <laughs> such okay. That sounds great. So what, what comes to your mind when you think about uh, I mean, I think the, the account in your first book, we, we, you discuss being a lab assistant, I think. You were working in a scientific... Oh, um, gosh. Yeah. Is that bring back memory? And, summer and, job. Yeah. Summer job. But what's interesting is that this was... A, you said this... Describe this scientist as a no-nonsense scientist. This is in your... I think your, your phrase. Saying that you would always be a priest or do the work of a priest. That's true. Um, do you want to... Is that a, pl- a place that's... Spark something in your consciousness to begin sure. talking, or what sure. was going on at that time, or what anything. What comes? What comes to mind? Well, in order to understand that, I think uh, that does help to know that I was in a religious Catholic religious order from the time I was thirteen till twenty six. Okay. And that really had a big impact on me, and I still, I still try to live that life. I loved it. And it, it's with me, it's vividly with me, even now, all these years later. And uh, I was studying to be a priest, and I left it when I was 26 after, you know, putting a lot of time into it. And um, I was I was definite that I needed to leave. There's no question about that. Uh, but I thought I would just forget it all. I left religion. I, I left everything when I left uh, that religious order. Mm-hmm. And uh, and. Yes, I got a summer job right after that, and I was going for a walk with this chemist, and I was working in a chemical lab for the summer, and I knew nothing what I was doing. I knew nothing, really. I love chemistry, but 
they, they just gave me uh, coded things to uh, to work with, so I didn't have to know the chemistry really. Right. Anyway, anyway, the chemist was going for a walk with me, and he did out of the blue told me he said you're going to be a priest your whole life, hmm. and I thought he was nuts. I thought that. This guy doesn't know. I've left everything, <laughs> you know, that I don't want anything to do with all this. And and so I tried to be a musician, and uh, that didn't work for a number of reasons. And and then I, uh, um, I, I, I had the opportunity to get a, a Ph.D. in religion, of all things, mm-hmm. at Syracuse University. When it was first proposed to me to do that, I thought, again, these people were crazy. They didn't know me, that I didn't want to have anything to do with religion. Okay. But I went anyway, and I loved it, and Syracuse gave me more than I can say, uh, a wonderful education, just what I needed. So... I mean, I know I'm I'm a pianist, composer, and a musician. So I want. Do you mind? Yes, I know. Do you mind if I backtrack a little bit? So you were you at one point considering that in a fuller sense, or? Oh yes, I was known really among my friends as a musician. Most you know, a good part of my early life. Okay. I um, uh, when I was in the monastery, I began. Uh, I, gave, I well, I was uh, took. Uh, how would you put? I was I was taking lessons in piano and keyboards and uh, uh, theory, and then uh, I got very interested in composition. So I kind of self-taught myself. I, I got some very good books in contemporary composition. Mm-hmm. So I began writing music when I was in the monastery. Okay. And uh, and then when it came time when I was still in the monastery, to they they wanted all of us to get degrees in some associated subject. So I I suggested music. So I studied music composition for four well for four years, four year program at DePaul University in Chicago. Okay. And and then when I left there, I went to the University of Michigan, and I I, had, I, I did a, a courses in composition there, but I got a degree in musicology. Okay. So uh, I was still composing, and I was still uh, you know conducting choirs and playing. Uh, Playing for you know for churches and things like that, and, and uh, but then eventually um, when I got the degree in religion, I kind of left music behind, and I still arrange music and I still have it performed occasionally, and um, uh, but I play the piano every day, but that's pretty much the extent of my musical life right now. So, I mean, I know music continues to be a part of your life, and I know you mentioned Bach and Bach partitas. Yes. Um, is there anything you want to say before we move on from music about Bach, Bach or Bach partitas? I mean, I know Bach's sure. very important sure. to me, just yes, as a sorry. ritual every day. Well, I think Bach was the greatest composer, really. I mean, it's, it's, and you can't say things like that, but I really do believe it. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't think anyone ever was able to do what he did. No. Nope. And what I do when I play a Bach uh, a partito or something like that, I see, especially like the inventions he did, because they're very clear, that he, like in one of the first inventions he ever wrote for piano, he wrote three notes and based the entire piece on variations of those three notes. Well, when I write a book, I like to think about that. I think of my book as an invention, as a, or, or a partita, something that I'm writing that has a musical form in a certain way. I'm very sensitive to form. And I think the reason that I, I, I mean, you know, when I write my books, I, I'm very, very attentive to the, 
to the rhythm of the words and to the, yeah. the structure of the book, the structure of the sentence, what yeah. sentence, where to put various sentences. And so the form is extremely important to me, and I think that's the musician uh, working there. Well, that, that's another reason why I love having you, I'm honored to have you on my show, because that's the way I see everything. I'm, I'm partly a formalist, if, you, if, I wanted to, if I had to label myself, and, I, and uh, actually... I think that thing I responded to you to you in your writing, I thought I was reading writing of such a high quality, and I think part of it is the thing, you're, the very thing you're talking about right now, just the art of sentences and sentence structure and syntax, and so I really felt, and I know you're deeply learned. You have read, you're more well read than I am, uh, in some of in some of the things that went into your work. I've only read a little bit of Ficino, for example, but not, you know, but I, later on, I want you to talk about some of these folks, because I think I want to spread the word. People need to know about people like Erasmus and Ficino, but I'll hold yeah. that thought for a second. But um, I feel like I was reading somebody, when I first encountered you, writing on the level of an Emerson or a Thoreau, that kind of seriousness. And I thought, wow, this is really, really something. And so, uh, and I, but I can see now that that's, that was conscious on your part, that you, I think you were... Right, you were. There was were kind of your models, I think, and not. Yes, I, I, I've, uh, I, you know, I read. Uh, I still read Emerson and Thoreau almost every day. I, yeah. I always put Emily Dickinson in the same category. I put their own neighbors, you know, and mm -hmm. so I, I put them together. I, and uh, to me, they are uh, uh, what they were doing with uh, religion was so similar to me, so similar, and they are models for me. And I, they're also models to me for the um, yeah the, the influences. They were very influenced by what was going on in Europe and in the East, by the way, too. Eastern religions, both of them, and um, all or all of them. And uh, I was I, I'm also uh, influenced by the way they approach writing. Mm -hmm. um, so so Roe is you know my writing is is not. I don't think you can say that it's studied or terribly stylized. It's, I try to make it very simple so that people can read it. But within that, I try to put some art, you know, try, try to do it uh, carefully and thoughtfully. So I really, what I try to do in all my work, essentially, is to speak to the average person and yet not give up the art and the intellect that's in it. Well, yeah, you got everything in there, and so I, I, I didn't want to give, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want to give a so when I went on and on, as I hopefully not too long about things like form and, and syntax, uh, I didn't want to give the impression that such things are, um, or what you might call studied. I mean, I, I think that um, everything that a human being makes involves a certain amount of discipline and work, and that's the study or the, or the formal part. But I, but I think that the, the result is something that is hopefully eternal. And because it's eternal, uh, we'll speak to what you can call average. Um, that is, it's for everybody. And yeah. so I, I don't really have, I've never had a very good sense of what's for everybody or what's for this pe person and that. I just, I don't have any, any patience with that. Because yeah. yeah. I think it's completely arbitrary yeah. and has often been used against people in, in all sorts of ways. Yeah. But, um, and so I, I think that you're, you've succeeded in, in, in your project. Well, you know, I don't do it that consciously. I mean, I, I don't try to write down in any way. I don't try to be popular. And that's obvious, I think. Yeah. And yet, I'm not an academic, and so the academics have a lot of trouble with me too. Do they? <laughs> so huh. um, I, well, not you know, not not really. I mean, they they respond quite well, but not as academics, you know. Yeah. I, 
I keep, I've been waiting for years and years to be offered a job somewhere. <laughs> On the other hand, my family and I, all of my family members are artist types, and uh, we're all, we all strive not to have jobs in our lives. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, a lot of times people are in the academy, I think, because that's the only sort of place for them for what they're doing. Sometimes, you know. Yes, I suppose, yes. That's, you know, that's a big question, I know, in music, you know, does, oh, yeah. it, does it help, a, does it ruin a composer to be teaching at a university? Sometimes people ask that question. Well, I, I'm not, I'm now not teaching at an institution university. Mm. I can tell you, but the, right. kind, the kind of music I write is, is tonal. <laughs> and so yeah. already that would raise issues because there's all kinds of fashions and dog, you know, I write very... Yes, yeah, I know, yeah. Yeah, you know about all that, so... Yeah. But I have to write what you believe or what you hear, and that's what I hear, so that's, that's how yes, I write. Yes, of course. So. Well, I, I was going to say the same thing a minute ago, that I don't think about who I'm writing for, really. I, I just write. I write for, you know, the, the eternal, the authors that I that impress me. I, I write for Emerson and Thoreau and Emily Dickinson. They have been the models, mm-hmm. and, many, and many others. And uh, so I write, I write uh, in their... You know, I don't need to say that I'm at all, obviously, writing as their brothers and brothers. But I'm writing, uh, I'm, try, I'm trying to to match their ideal anyway, try to go toward their ideal. So, and, so you're doing that, but then at the same time, you're also becoming a psycho- psychologist, a therapist. But yeah. I, guess, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. That happens so... So in terms of the chronology, how do we get from, from, from the monastery to yeah. therapy to discovering Yoon? Or you could talk about to someone that doesn't know about it or someone. Yeah, like. yeah that's, that's true. I, I, uh, I don't think I, I – I know I didn't read much of Yoon. I read the popular books of Yoon before I went to Syracuse to work on my PhD. I was 30 when I uh, – 32, I think, when I went to Syracuse. And um, – when I was there, the first course I, I first seminar I took was on Jung, and I was assigned to read the collective works right away. That's you know that's eighteen volumes, of pretty heavy going material. So I read the, the, the I read the collective works of Jung, and shortly afterwards got in touch with James Hillman, and we were in correspondence. Jung uh, Hillman was over at the Jung Institute in Zurich at the time, wow. and um, so he would send me everything he was writing. Uh, he'd get them published in journals and send them to me, and we had, we discussed a lot of that stuff before we ever met. So I was studying Jung pretty intensely then. I actually read his collective works twice while I was there at Syracuse, uh, so it really got steeped in it. You know, it's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of things to look at when you're doing Jung. Three of his volumes, that probably amounts to about uh, 12 or 1,500 pages, is alchemy. So you have to, you know, and I had, fortunately, I had studied Latin for a long time. I, mm-hmm. I had about seven or eight years of study of Latin, and then I, I was taught in Latin. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when I studied philosophy in Northern Ireland as part of my, my, my monastic life, uh, the classes were all taught in Latin, and I had to I had to write my exams and even do oral exams in Latin. So anyway, I knew the Latin pretty well, and uh, so the alchemy, which is all written in Latin, uh, was uh, was attractive to me, and I, I loved to study it there in, in the original language. 
And, um, and Jung was doing that. He was getting these uh, manuscripts and working from that and developing an alchemical psychology, which I still use and still love very much. So it's a very rich, it's a very, very rich material, you know, everywhere you turn there. Uh, it's, it's quite rich. And it's hard for me to, you know, most people are not interested. I, I'd love to be able to talk to them for a long time about alchemical psychology, but you can't do that with too many people so <laughs> well i can tell you so, right now that if you're if you're on my show which you are um i might ask you to get into some of that stuff if you don't mind no um, or anything so for example two things that pop into my mind is what what's what has stayed with you about having that latin education or what what philosophers were you reading and that comes to mind uh, first before we move on to that just that's quite extraordinary not everybody gets to have that kind of education no that's what, true so what's, what, uh, what can you say about having had that experience of doing that for, for your life and for your... Well, it gave me, it gave me a real um, love of translation, for one thing, so I love to translate things now. Mm-hmm. I still do now. I do a lot of translating. And I, uh, it also gave me a love of, of language so that even today, if I'm studying anything, I just don't like it if I have to go through an English translation so I have trouble. I, I do my best with some languages that I don't, you know, have no acquaintance with. But the Latin and Greek are, are, are languages that I can get along with fairly comfortably. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I love to, to work in that. So I, I keep looking for Latin sources. Now, I, as you were saying, I, uh, when I was at Syracuse, I came across the uh, writings of Marsilio Ficino, who was living in the 15th century in Italy, and he was trying to uh, introduce the concept of soul to his society. He was going away from the universities who were very interested in Aristotle, who was kind of a scientist, scientific philosopher. Yes. And he, uh, he was interested in Plato, who was more of an aesthetic philosopher. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he wanted to, and, and Plato wrote a great deal about soul and about therapy. Or so, did or did he? Or did he? Yeah, that's, right. a, that's a yeah. that's a that's a whole. We opened up because we're talking about uh, Aristotle and Plato, um, yeah. and my show is called Journey of an Aesthete, and I'm on a journey, yeah. and you're on a journey. Aristotle's yeah. somebody. There's a lot of um, ink spilled um, debating the pros and cons of Aristotle and Plato, right? And yeah. uh, but uh, but then there's Ficino, and what were you saying about more aesthetic? That's interesting. But well, Ficino was interested in bringing soul to society. Soul, the concepts of soul he got from both Plato and also the, the early students of Plato, like Plotinus and Porphyry, various people like that. And they are very interesting writers. Plotinus is, oh, yeah. you know, Plotinus is, Plotinus's book on the soul, written in the third century, is, uh, is mainly about beauty. So talking about aesthetics, you know. Uh, it's all about the soul and beauty. Mm-hmm. Beauty is the main thing. Yep. So that's very interesting. So, so, uh, and the other thing behind it all, I'm getting, I'm, you know, I'm just putting too much in here, but the other thing behind it all is Epicurus, the philosopher, Greek philosopher of pleasure. Mm-hmm. So Pacino was very interested in developing uh, a soul-oriented culture and approach to life, and he, he did that by translating all these platonic texts. They hadn't been translated into Latin. So he did that, and he also wrote commentaries on them. 
And uh, so he was teaching this, and people like Botticelli apparently studied with him. I don't know if we have absolute evidence for that, but wow. it's pretty clear that he did. Ficino just had a group of people meeting regularly to discuss the soul. And that's what I do. You know, right. I'm not a university. I gather people together, and we talk about the soul. Well, that's what we're doing this morning. That's right. That's we're, what doing, we're doing this morning. We're doing the Botanic Academy this morning. Yeah. Um, well, for, for people who are, aren't quite as initiated or knowledgeable about soul, spirit, and body, is mm -hmm. this a time? Would this be a good time to get into details about that, or do you want to wait? Sure. Later? Sure. Because yeah, I think sure. there's a lot. There's a lot of um, I think misconceptions. Well, I should say that there's all sorts of misconceptions about theology. On an earlier oh, yeah. on an earlier show, I said there's a lot of bad theology out there. Oh, yeah. Just bigoted theology. I mean, you call it literalism. Is that your term? Because I remember in your first book, I think you said the sin of the age is literalism. That's a sin yes, of the age. Yes. Is it, is, yeah. Even though you wrote that 30 years ago, is it still true, right? Oh, absolutely. Sure, absolutely. That is the problem, the big problem. We, we, we don't have a poetic mind. Hillman talked about that. He said he talked about the poetic basis of mind was his phrase. Hmm. And uh, we, we don't have a poetic way of seeing things, and therefore we take everything literally and don't really see deeply enough into what's going on. This is, by the way, where the psych psychotherapy comes into it, because going back to my writing, uh, with all of that interest in the form, the fact is I'm a therapist as I write. That's right. And uh, that's very platonic. I think Plato was a therapist, and he defined the word therapy. Uh, meaning service and care. And and so that's what I try to do. I try to care for people's souls as I write. And the response I have got over the past 30 years from from people reading these books, or almost 30 years, is, uh, is that they do take them as therapy. They see them as, uh, you know, uh, sorting out, that's a chemical term, Sorting out their uh, their their lives and sorting out their emotions, and that's really that's the that's the first step in alchemy is to sort out. So sorting out is a, is a phrase that you said you say has a lot of roots going back as an ancient. You yes. say it's an ancient formulation. Yes, it is. In the alchemists used used two words for it. One was separatio, separation. It doesn't mean the same as the English word exactly. It means separating out, separating things out. Mm -hmm. And solutio, which means solution, but not, not the resolution of a problem, but putting something into solution, like in chemistry, you, you make a solution and you put, uh, you put material into a solution, into a liquid of some kind, and you get a solution. So uh, that's what solutio is. So it's all about sorting out so that you can see things better, see, see what's going on. In, in particular, what's happening. Like, if you just have emotion, if you say you're depressed, mm -hmm. that, does, that doesn't take you very far. So if you, if you sort that out into its narratives, into the stories, into its history in your life, or the history of depression generally, you know all that sorting out, you're much farther ahead. Is, is, is what you're talking about connected to at all? I'm going to ask you a question. Um, to what William James was discussing when he discussed concepts and percepts, you think? Or is it different? I really don't know. You don't know? I don't, I don't know James. I'm oh, okay. <laughs> I couldn't make that connection. I know Hillman liked to talk about William James, but 
Uh, no, I've never been drawn to that uh, network, and I've, I've drawn to so many other things. Right. And I, I just haven't done it. You have a lot. You, you have a lot to, to concentrate on. So I do. Um, so getting back to literalism being the sin of the age, I, I think that – so where, where do you see literalism at work if that indeed is a – just at whatever comes to mind that you could say, oh, well, this is a, an example. Of well, this, all you have to do is read the newspaper and see how people are interpreting things, like how we're interpreting the political situation in the United States today. It's it's uh, people are recognizing that there is division and there is a, there's polarization in the society, but they don't take it much deeper than that, you know, to really explore the whole idea of polarization. And to uh, it's all about how many people do it and who's right and who's wrong. That's all quite literal. Yeah. That means it's not going deeper into the story, the narrative we are in. Partly you get into that through history. So we can look at the history of our country and how we have been polarized in the past. Mm-hmm. But what it is about the United States, what, it is, what is it about our people? that could be polarized in this way, uh, that hasn't been explored. So uh, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done there. <laughs> I should say so. Um, so you're, you're discovering Hillman. Now, did you read uh, Revisioning Psychology um, before it was published? Were you, um... I read articles that, that, were, that it was based on, yeah. Like I read about, there's a chapter on polytheism, a section on polytheism, psychological polytheism in his book. Well, I read his, I read his essay on polytheism before that book came out. And the same with the other sections, each of them, pathologizing and uh-huh. seeing through. I, I, I read those before they came out, but he, had a, a, he told me he had a, an editor working with him there to try to make his, his ideas a little easier to digest and take in. And uh, so it was interesting to read that because um, revisioning psychology is really not in the tone of James Hillman. It's, it's written with an, a strong influence of an editor so that he could be as clear as he, he could be. Even then, it's a bit of a challenge, but uh, it's, you know, it's clear. It's, it's, I, I've always found Hillman very easy to read. There are other writers I find difficult to read, but uh, I know people find him, some people find him difficult, but... I think maybe we, you know, he and I were good friends, so we understood each other, and also we had a somewhat similar background. He went to Ireland, as I did. He studied at Trinity and uh, Trinity College in Dublin, and he got that classical European education. He also went to the Sorbonne. You know, he's, wow. he had that European, strong European background, which I got from my uh, experience in a religious order that was founded in Italy and had a strong Italian uh, theme to it. Yeah, uh, so Hillman, I, f- I find Hillman really joyful to read. I mean, I haven't read everything he's written. I remember, remember that book, We've Had a Thousand Years of, a Hundred Years of yes. Psychology in the World or something. What is it? The world We've is, had a hundred years of psychotherapy and the world is getting worse. The world is getting worse. And that's a fairly accessible book. You can read that. And that's, very accessible, very. Um, but if, for someone that doesn't really, hasn't maybe thought about monotheism and polytheism, what would you what would you um, say as by way of introduction to what that what that might mean or what you know in terms of a poly well, polytheistic psychology? I know that's a big question, and, and it I, is. Yeah. I can I'll, I can say it in a few words. <laughs> um, uh, the, the the idea of polytheism comes from Greek religion, among other religions, that uh, people honor 
uh, recognize different uh, different deities and gods. And if you you've got to think about that a, a bit. And, and we tend to be literal there too. There are these gods in the sky somewhere, you know, sitting on clouds. It's not that. It's that there are certain powers and and uh, focal points of experience and of life that have a power that we are not, and they are not in our control. So we we see them as maybe they, people have seen them as gods. But um, we don't have to be quite so naive about that and recognize that polytheism is an, a view of life, looking at life and seeing that there's not just one thing, one principle that controls it all, but there are many things going on at once. There's Aphrodite and sexuality and pleasure, and there is Mars with aggression. All of these things that we find in astrology as well. So... Um, Polytheism, means, polytheism, as someone presents, it means that we ourselves are, are multiple. We have multiple things going on within us, mm-hmm. out of our control. And uh, we, have to, we have to really honor all these different claims on us. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you can't just try to get it all under your control into one monotheistic package. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to live somehow with multiplicity within yourself. And then with diversity in the world around you. Nolan's idea is, is that if you can't, if you can't live with your own diversity, you're going to have trouble with diversity in the world around you. Wow. Well, it, se- it seems like uh, that comment from Hill- uh, Hillman is is one that could have been written for today, August fifth, two thousand nineteen, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, because diversity is a bu- buzzword. It but, is. I, but I often think we're superficial or shallow about it. What about spiritual yeah. diversity? Or, or diversity of interiority. It's always about diversity of very large groups of people. Yes, it's all out there. It's yeah. Everything today, the way we look at things, it's all outside of us. We don't, we don't, we don't see that there's an inner life and an outer life that are connected to each other. And you can't really understand one without the other. You can't really become uh, able to live with diversity in the world if you can't have that freedom to find a multiplicity within yourself. If you're always trying to be fully in control of yourself and have a very strong ego, then um, you're not going to be able to appreciate the diversity of people. On the other hand, if you do, if you do see how wonderful it is to be such a diverse person yourself, you will enjoy and really revel in the diversity that's around you. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned Aphrodite. I, w- I want to... Uh... Um, mentioned an essay you wrote as part of your book, um, Enchant- Re-Enchantment of Everyday Life, on Marilyn Monroe. You wrote a oh, chapter, I- an essay on Marilyn Monroe. I most- forgot that. Well, I haven't <laughs> forgotten. And I've been. It's a, it's, I mean, that's a that's a beautiful piece of writing. I mean, Thank what, I mean, because that because that connects. I think, and I think no, I think that was in the Soul of Sex. I'm sorry, that isn't Probably. Re-Enchantment. Of the- but you I remember when you were doing book tours of that, you talked about revisiting how Ashby's movie Shampoo. Oh yes, that's right. Which is one of my favorite Ashby movies. Yeah. Um, and I'm and so that that's a way of talking about how works of art, even popular works of art, can actually have have depth in them if they're well made. So what oh, comes yeah. to, what comes to mind about that? You could maybe mention Marilyn Monroe or mention shampoo well, or anything sure that, I can yeah she Marilyn Monroe was was a person who understood especially if you read her writing her words you know she she was very very intelligent and not in an academic sense but she really had a lot of insight and she understood her role that her role was to, to was to be a goddess you know as they said rather than a human being and 
she once said, and I quoted her about this, that she put her makeup on uh, maybe excessively so that the people far away could see her and see who she was. I think what, when she says something like that, she's saying, I am not in charge of my life. My, somehow or other, my, this goddess, some goddess has come along and wants me to be her servant. And I have to be this for the people out there, and I'm going to do everything I can to work at myself so I can be, uh, you know, manifest that to the world. And she certainly has. I mean, even today, she's been gone for a very long time, and still she is the icon of, of that part of life that is so important that we have great trouble with. We have great trouble with Aphrodite. I would say that, and I often think about this these days, that the one thing that we've neglected, Hillman always used to ask what the god or goddess we are neglecting. I think we're neglecting Aphrodite. That is that the spirit of Marilyn Monroe, which is the spirit of uh, sensuality and kind of uh, not being so so proper and uh, not having to uh, go sort of give in to this uh, Puritan uh, morality that we that we so affected our life here in America. You leave America and you find in other parts of the world, you may find moralism, but you don't find that same brand that we have, we have here. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, I think that's one of our greatest problems because the repression of our sexuality is the repression of our vitality. And when you do that, you end up being aggressive. There's a close relationship between sexuality and anger mm-hmm. and between Venus and Mars. And so, uh, I think we have to, you know, really take a look at that. And I hope that people can come along and think more mythologically about what's happening in our world. Yeah, think, think, um, think mythologically. I guess think. I would say aesthetically. The way I use that word is is much broader. A lot of people, when I'm, you know, you know how many times I've had to define the, the word aesthete for people. I can only imagine. I'm telling you, I'm doing this podcast, and you know, I've got, you know, shrunk people shake their head and what's that yeah, and right, aesthetics right. and all that. But maybe that's why I'm doing it. Maybe that's part of the point of having the thing <laughs> is to sort of get people to to um, get in touch with that. I was going to say the very first when we began our conversation how much I like that title. I like it very much because who, who in the world talks about aesthetics these days? And that's one way to bring Aphrodite back into the world, to be concerned about the aesthetic life. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, people have to go a long way. Today, everyone's so pragmatic, it's very hard to get to that level. Yeah, I, I want you, do you mind talking for a little bit about the tyranny of that pragmatism or utilitarianism? I mean, it's really... It seems to be exploding, everything from STEM and how science and math is everything. And, oh, my gosh. And, and then also, of course, there's this scientific materialism, which is so arrogant. Yes, very arrogant. Uh, I've I, 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 I tried to have a, uh, debates about that. You know, one time, uh, Carl Sagan and I had actually planned, I didn't know him, but I contacted him, and we, we had planned a debate. Interesting. Because... Because he was, I thought he was very good. He was very uh, open and he was uh, very articulate. And I thought it would be nice to have a debate about about his point of view. He thought that the things I'm interested in, like uh, the reenchantment, uh, he thought was a waste of time and got in the way of science. And so I thought it'd be great to have a debate on it. Uh, we need some conversation about what's happening here. No one, we, everyone seems to 
just accept this pragmatism and literalism in the world and stem and, uh, uh, you know, that, that approach to life and uh, neuroscience. I, you know, I have a really hard time listening to many, uh, not all, but many neuroscientists who, what bothers me is not that they are brilliant about the brain, which is uh, really helpful, but, mm-hmm. uh, but that they arrogantly, as you said, arrogantly uh, take some of the great philosophical questions of the centuries and say, I, now we either prove them or disprove them. It's very arrogant, the sci- arrogant scientists coming in, you know, so uh, Dr. Frankenstein, that kind of thing. And so I, I, think, uh, I think that, uh, you know, some of us have to just, like you and I, have to keep speaking for the aesthetic and aesthetics and, and not worry about the, those people who are so, so literal and pragmatic. Well, in doing that, I think we might have to have conversations with people who are ensconced in the sciences, right? I mean, in other words, what you were trying to do with uh, Carl Sagan. Of course, Carl Sagan wrote that book, The Demon Haunted World. Yes. Which right. it would be interesting to read that alongside your work. Yes. Because, That's what I'm saying. We're yeah. going to debate that. Yeah, because for you, this haunting might be a good thing, right? Or it might be. Whereas for him, so he's worried, I think he's worried about. Haunting in, in a pejorative sense about superstition yes. and yes, that's right. And so that's that, interesting. Yeah. yeah, that was that was our argument. That's why we could have had a debate. And yet I thought that he was his, his mind was open enough that we could we could do it. I thought we could. Unfortunately, right as we were making our plans concretely, he developed this uh, this uh, cancer that got him. Yeah, that's um, well. Carl Sagan, rest in peace. Yes, actually, I think I think one of the things I, I think one of the things about my show that we're going to mention Carl Sagan and Marilyn Monroe and Ficino in the same in the same <laughs> sentence. I think <laughs> I think I think we're off to a good start. I think so. So, um, did you want to talk more about your practice as a therapist and how it relates to your writing or prose? Because um, I know you mentioned that they're they're in some way intertwined, and what that um, yeah. I have a broad definition of therapy. I take it from Plato directly. He, he wrote about it directly. He, one of his, uh, in one of his dialogues, a student asked Socrates, what, by the way, he says, what is therapy? And I thought, wow, that's, this is a passage I need to really read many, many times mm-hmm. to see Plato's answer to that question. And his answer is that it's like uh, taking care of a horse. It's like if you're on a farm. And you have to take care of a horse. All the chores you have to do with the horse all day long. That's what therapy, that was the example he gave. That's what therapy is like. It's a daily care. It's a daily care in a very ordinary way. People have asked me how they should take care of their souls. I say, make sure your house is in good shape. Get out your tools and fix something that's wrong in your house. Because that's therapy. That's what therapy means. So I don't practice therapy in the modern sense of the word. You know, that's not what I do. And uh, uh, I use the word in, in the platonic sense, not in the modern sense. So when I say I do some therapy, I don't, I'm not a therapist in the, in the contemporary sense at all. Uh, and so I try to help people care for their souls and, uh, and care for the, their lives and the things that matter to them that are close by. And, and one of the things I've learned from some of my colleagues is how important it is to care for the things of the world. And then therefore, ecology and environment and taking care of uh, and being responsive to the climate change and that sort of thing mm-hmm. is care of the soul. 
And I think our planet itself is a living being. Pacino said that our world is an animal. Mm. I think that's a, that really is a very interesting thought. So we have to care for that animal, and we have to care for all of us in it and all of the things in it. And that's a big job. So we need, a soul, we need soulful buildings that are cared for. Their soul is cared for regularly. We need soulful roads and highways. Mm-hmm. We need soulful uh, kitchen utensils, you know, all of this. And I think a lot of people who have lived on this planet have shown us with the way they've designed these things that they see that they are related to the gods, that, uh, mm-hmm. that it's, all, it's all together and it's all, it all has a soul. So uh, soulfulness and soul music, which I love and is, is, a, big, is a big, so obviously soul music, Rhythm and blues yeah. uh, comes to mind. Um, are you, I wanted to I wanted to bring up again the movie Shampoo. I don't know why. I don't know because I think uh, you gave a story illustration about something about the character in that movie. And the reason why I mentioned that particular film, well, I could have mentioned any film, is because a lot of times people today get very worked up when they review a movie or a book about whether the movie or book is lib- liberal or conservative and all that sort of thing and what it means, and I thought that you had a way of looking at that movie that was special, that you saw the essence of that, what that picture was about. So, <laughs> do you mind? Uh, uh, what, what, I, you know, I have to dredge that up. I can't yeah. remember writing it. I, I do remember writing something about it, but I can't remember the point I made. I, I know there was a specific point. I felt that, for one thing, taking care of your hair is really a very important thing to do. I've written several articles uh, over the years about the bathroom and about uh, shampoo and, uh, uh, you know, um, oils and fragrant oils. And uh, Ficino was very interested in fragrances as part of the soul care. And so I got that partly from him, you know, directly understanding that when you, when you are concerned about your hair, these young people, if they stand in front of a mirror, men, you know, young men and young women, Looking at their hair and getting it just right and getting the right uh, the right way of uh, of shaping their hair and so on, that that is caring for the soul in a very deep and important way. We tend to think of care of the soul as psychology and figuring yourself out, getting into your relationships and your parents and all that, which that's part of it. Yeah. But it's also very important to get your hair the way you want it. And uh, if your hair is thinning, to be worried about it, well, to do something about it. And and when it comes to uh, your your you know yourself, I'm I'm a great fan of plastic surgery. I think I think anything we do to to about our appearance and that's aesthetics as well. Um, that um, it's a very important for the soul. It's not superficial. It's more important than many of the things we consider essential. Yeah, well, I actually remember... So shampoo fits into that. Well, I remember exactly what you said since you asked. You said that the main, char- the main character, the Warren Beatty character, was in trouble. You described him as really, really depressed and going through, a, going through a, I guess, a spiritual crisis. And you, you noted that every time in the movie he looks at Lee Grant's hair or looks at um, Julie Christie's hair and comes involved in that, he comes alive, that there's something... Something yes, really, right. he has a breakthrough in those moments. And you yes, said that was, right. some, that was some key to the, to the story or the narrative of the film. But that's what you, you said. Um, yes, that's right. Well, the hair then becomes, you know, it's the doorway to the soul. 
caring for your hair or other people's hair. I mean, being a hairdresser is quite interesting. You know, it's a great, a great uh, profession. It's a very soul profession because hair means so much to people. It means so much aesthetically, aesthetically, how it looks and uh, and how it changes and changes color and all that kind of thing. It's very, very important. And so, in general, what I've written about is how important the bathroom is, or in my, you know, where we care for our bodies. Very important room in the house. And therefore, I think we should give special care to it, that it's a place we want to be and, uh, and take care of our, our bodies. And that's um, uh, it's something that's neglected because I know from when I was in the monastery, uh, we were told once, I remember one day the word came down that we were not, were not allowed to use shampoo anymore. We had to use bar soap to wash our hair. This was considered more austere, befitting a monk. Right. And, and me and my my fellow colleagues, we thought it was crazy, you know, that that was really, really going over the edge. Someone really must have flipped out when they had to come up with that idea. So that, but you can see that on, on the level of a very spiritual person might think it's good. It's good not to take care of your hair, mm-hmm. and because they're out of touch with the soul. If it's too spiritual, they get out of touch with the soul. The soul really needs shampoo, and right. I think that. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's something that, that I, I, I imagine many audiences or, or people, this tension between spirit and soul. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, the spiritual life and the soulful life and, and the, the, I guess the nature thing you just mentioned just now about question of balance going in one direction or the other? Anything that comes to your mind on that subject? Because I know that's, yes. if you're not tired of uh, talking about it, although I think. Of course not. Of yeah. course not. No, when I first came across this concept, I got a little bit in young, but especially Hellman wrote an article uh, early on in his career called Peaks and Veils. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, yeah, Peaks and Veils about the spirit and the soul, and that really, really changed my life, my approach to things. It took me a long time to really grasp what it implied, but over the years it's become more and more important. And... um, so what it means essentially is that there's an element, so there's a direction we can take in life that is very spiritual, which is wonderful. There's, I'm not saying that spirit and soul are one's good and one's bad or one's better. Mm-hmm. That's not the way it is. They're both essential. They're both required. Mm. But we can go so far into one side of that, like become so spirited, mm-hmm. spiritual, so caught up in, even spirited, like being caught up in ideas and abstractions and thinking rather than living and being there in the middle of life. Soul is right there in the midst of life. It's ordinary life. And uh, it has a lot to do with home, where you are at home, where you find your pleasure. Restaurants are are very, usually, they can be places of soul, depending on how people create them and maintain them. But there could be places of soul where people can come. You know, the word restaurant means restore. So you go to a restaurant to restore yourself. What are you restoring? I think you're restoring your soul. But the spirit, you go to church for the spirit. And you go there and you don't eat. And you don't sit back in, in nice, comfortable uh, seats. And uh, you don't uh, just relax and, and give yourself pleasures. Uh, it would be interesting if you did have a more soulful church where people were served good food and drinks before the thing began. <laughs> <laughs> 
See, we don't imagine that because it is so spiritual. These ordinary soul things that you would do in your home, yeah. give your guests something to drink, alcohol or not, you know, anything. Um, we, that's very appropriate at home because it's a soulful thing. But in church, we, we, we tend to get away from the body and from Aphrodite and sensuality and the pleasures of, of our body. And so the farther you, the, or the, how would I put it, the more strenuous you get in moving away from soul in that spiritual life, the more dangerous it becomes. Because mm-hmm. it's the soul that keeps us tied to our humanity that makes us feel connected to other people and uh, uh, keeps us lowly rather than up there thinking we're above everybody. And it's very concrete. And and uh, so both soul and spirit are valuable, but if you can become too spiritual, you risk losing soul. And that's not a good thing. You lose your humanity mm. and the very purpose of life and your relationships suffer. Mm. And you can become depressed because loss of soul can lead to depression. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that makes me think about uh, some of these uh, high-profile pundits and um Experts who who say that consciousness is unreal or an illusion, or or try to say that you know all the things they say yes. about 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 what our inner experience is or isn't. Yes. Maybe they maybe they're insufficiently spiritual and so forth. It's hard yes. to. Yes. Yeah. There's a there's a kind of spirit that gets away. There are many ways of develop entering the spirit realm. It can be done in the academic world. Uh, where if you just look at how academic life goes, usually what's done is that the, the academics is all about the spirit and a soul finds its place in the fraternity houses, you know, places like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it gets finds its own little pocket off, off to the side, not really part of that, that structure. It's the same with religion and churches. If you uh, go to the churches, everything is quite austere usually, but you go and have... Have uh, have dinner with those uh, priests and clergy who run the churches, and they're pretty lavish and very sensual. Usually, I've had lots of experiences like that, and uh, so uh, I think that uh, there's a way in which our industrial realm is also quite spirited. You know, it's quite. It, it may not look like it. Doesn't look like church, but it is in a way. There are a lot of things that are very spiritual. Like sports can be very spiritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 have a lot of uh, soullessness about them. I remember the like, it, reminds, it reminds me of a story when I first met Hillman when he came to Dallas where I was living. He was going to live there for a few, about five years, and the two of us then really cemented our friendship when he was. We were both living in Dallas, and the very first uh, week he was there, I had been there a year already, and he asked me if I told him, I said, I'll drive you around anywhere you'd like to go. And he said, I'd like to go to a, a neighborhood baseball game. <laughs> yeah. So so I took him to a ball game. We found a baseball game on the sandlot somewhere. And we watched that. And he was enthralled. And uh, he taught me really how to watch baseball. <laughs> and uh, he was interested in the interior life. and so interior that uh, the managers are thinking through their strategies. And the guys in the outfield are trying to Imagine where the ball is going to come. There's a lot of imagining and reflecting going on, and he loved that. But also, the the, the game that wasn't professional was so, had so much soul in it. These people coming out from various jobs, and they're in the neighborhood, and they come together and enjoy each other's company. And 
They play a game. They're playing. They're not working. They're playing, which is so important for the soul. And uh, so uh, the, the lo local baseball game uh, for Hellman, and I would say certainly as I say it, it's a very soulful thing, but the professional game can lose a lot of that soul mm. by being focused on money and, I don't know, so many you know heroes and stars. And you don't get the average person in the average neighborhood finding their, their game, their play, and what they do. And the spectator sport is certainly fine, but it's not the same as playing a game with your friends. No, it isn't. Um, in fact, uh, that's... People that have a devotion to athletics, and I, I do not count myself as among them, mm -hmm. um, um, really have something I respect. I'm able to see what they get out of that because I'm able to look at it and see. I'm also interested in works of art about athletes. It's an interesting oh, yeah. hobby. So I, I watch movies about sports. I'll go see Moneyball or see um, – I, I watch Friday Night Lights, you know, which is a TV. Even though I have no zero interest yeah, in yeah. the sport itself, I like the human stories. I think in part because it's so important to so many people. And that's my way of trying to understand what that importance is or enter, enter into that. That's right. I feel the same. I think that one thing you can do, and this is a kind of general, general psychological principle, you can give yourself a taste of the sports. Uh, for example, I play golf, and I have, I've, had really, I've explored golf as a game as, a, as play, as a ritual, and I've really looked at the language and history to have a sense of this sport. So I, I picked it up originally for my health to be able to get outside and walk and be. Mm -hmm. Just walking down the road doesn't do it for me. I need more motivation. So um, I, I enjoy that game, and, and I enjoy the history. I, I go to Scotland sometimes, and I talk to you know, people there. And who where golf is really serious thing for in their families. Uh -huh. and I, I love that family tradition, and it's not the same as the country club that in America where you feel that at least it used to be kind of a you know um, just for the wealthy, something like that, or a different class, or excluding uh, various uh, people like you know women or you know uh, race being racist and things like that. That's not really essential to the game. It's something else that accrued to it. But I find that playing this game and also having studied it, I've even, I've even given golf retreats, you know, retreat for people wow. golf, um, and talk to them about the, the imagery of it. And, you know, when I did that, uh, before we went out to play every morning, we'd have an hour session uh, talking about our dreams of that night. And my idea was to go out and play golf and be in the game with the dream fresh with us. Mm. You know? and uh, connected, our deep life connected to the play. So you can do these things in a way that brings soul to your life, I think. But they also can be done in a way that avoids the soul. That's interesting. I want to I want to come further up to date. And you wrote a book on the Gospels. Well, you wrote some, some a couple of really good books that you might say are more religious. Yes, you, you, did did. A, you did a book, <laughs> Writings in the Sand. Yes, these about, are recent books. Fairly, about Jesus Christ. Recent. And yes. then you wrote, you wrote a book that has one of the greatest titles ever. Actually, the content of the book I like very much is called A Religion of One's Own, yes. which I think you take from Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, maybe. Yes, I certainly do. Do you want to talk a little about either of those books? Because they're, they're so important. Um, to yes, yes. Writing in the Sand is a very important book for me. Uh, very few people have read it, but, uh, you know, that's a matter of 
And thank you. I'm glad to hear that. It's, it's, it's my take on who Jesus was and what he was trying to do. Having studied this for all my life and very interested, I really think that Jesus is a figure who uh, has the answers to our current problems, social problems. But they're very simple and they go against uh, the tradition. I think Christianity really does not represent Jesus very well, nope. does not represent the Gospels. I mean, there are some beautiful aspects of Christianity, and I certainly don't want to be critical of it generally, but a lot of things have gone on from the very beginning in history of Christianity that, were, to me, were anti-Gospel. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't have the spirit of the Gospel in them. And so it's confusing, I think, when people you know, go to a church that, uh, you know, that is contrary to the basic principles. Or I have to say that today, I know many, many pastors, huh. uh, pastors who are really doing it. They really do represent the gospel very well and intelligently. I know more of those than I know any you know, people who are not doing it. But there is that old tradition, long, long tradition, where Christianity as a thing in itself has not been very gospel-like. So what I try to do in writing the Sam is present Jesus without Christianity, really, without the influence of that kind of Christianity. And I translated the Gospels then from Greek, because I had enough Greek, to, and that Greek is very easy. The Greek of the Gospels is like, it's like a children's book almost. Huh. And um, so I translated the, uh, the Gospels because I felt some, a lot of key words were not being translated properly. And well, I felt that my translation is not exceptional. People would say, oh, you ought to read this. But it's, it's very simple. I wanted to stay faithful to the Greek and yet translate those Greek words in a way that they didn't keep that Christian bias that I thought was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so if you read my translation of the Gospel, you get an overall approach that's different from probably most people have been brought up with. But it's not, it's not so striking that, you know, you or knocked over by it. It's like a gradual, very very subtle way of, of redoing the whole thing. I know in your work you're very sensitive to words and their power and their meaning. For example, you'll talk about Senex or the Puer myth, which yes. has to do with a kind of a childhood or a certain ch childlike state, if I yes. understand it correctly. So what are examples of, wor of words where translation makes a profound difference in people's receiving Christ's message or words that have been mis misused? What are examples that come to mind? Of well, that? I, you know, my, I, I use a lot of examples in my, both of those books of mine. Uh, I, uh, the, most, the most obvious one is the word for sin. The word sin is used a lot, and that has such moralistic overtones. You know, people feel I'm a sinner, and, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of self-judgment, and, and it can suck the joy out of a person's life to feel that they commit sins all the time. Mm -hmm. So what I do is, um, I look at that word, you know, Aristotle wrote about the very word that is used in the New Testament. He wrote extensively about the word hamartia, huh. which, uh, which is the word used. That for sin, translated as sin. But Aristotle says that that word, hamartia, means that we, as human beings, we all make mistakes, that we make really significant mistakes in our lives because of ignorance. We don't know, we don't know the whole story, and we don't know enough our motives, what our motives are, and we don't know really what we're doing sometimes. So we make these mistakes that are really very serious. And uh, that's his translation 
uh, Amartya. Wow. So I can't, I can't, I couldn't find a word. I had to say something like, uh, 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 unfortunate, serious, unfortunate mistake, something like that. I used Aristotle's word mistake in my translation. Some people think that'd be too light, but I think that's exactly what he's saying, that, mm-hmm. that we are imperfect beings and, and we do things that are terrible. And even when they're really horrendous to other people, we can't just condemn people for it. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's always reason, there's always ignorance, and there's lack of moral development or something. So I think it's a very complex thing, very deep and profound, this idea of amartya. So to translate it as sin is just, uh, it's, it's, it's taken us in the wrong direction for yeah. centuries and centuries. Well, set those centuries, uh, that, that wrong direction seems to resonate with us today, August 5th, 2019, certainly with, with recent news. And, and, and so I, again, I think this is an area in which um, I can't think of a better person um, to, to be talking about such things. Than you, because I because I feel like I feel like um, it's it's timely, it, it, so it's both. I would say it's both eternal and timely. It's timeless and timely, right? It's both because always, because yeah. I think we're always suffering. You know, sometimes when bad, really bad things happen, we often wonder, well, why is that happening? We get angry and we seem to be um, confused, almost as if um, you know, almost as if we're we're, we're shocked into into um, sometimes numbness or. You know, we try to figure out what's going on, but that might connect to your your work on the Gospels because I think Jesus uh, dis- discussed the nature of all, right? All, right? Am I correct about that? Um, and he talked about not not knowing what they do or knowing what they do, and right? And you yes. mentioned you mentioned the word ignorance. Is that conne- is that connected to to that to that deep problem or or? Oh yes, I think it's connected to it. I think that's what yeah Jesus says. They don't know what they don't know what they're doing. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. Because that's the whole point. We don't know what we're doing. And the people who are uh, now a lot of people are coming out with their guns and shooting innocent people yeah. in places, and it's been going on for a while now. It's like it's a new thing, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I think you could say they don't know what they're doing, you know, and they kill themselves afterwards. It's like saying, look, I, I'm really crazy. I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm expressing something. And what they are expressing is not just themselves, not just their own psychology, but society's problem and society's issue. They are serving in a way they are representing society. Mm-hmm. Society, is, society has been killing its citizens anyway. How many... How many corporations have been willing to poison the atmosphere, to poison rivers, and to send out uh, uh, things into the world, food and pills and things like that they know to be, uh, to be uh, uh, harmful to people, and the, the profit has, has uh, blinded them. They don't know what they're doing either, but they are, doing, they are doing killing people in much larger numbers. So, uh, you know, it's part of society. We are, maybe these people are showing us that we are murderers, and we have to really change that mm. and become more sensitive to how we treat people. And you can't excuse it anymore. You can't, you can't just look away. So is your hope, is your hope that we will um, receive th- this news in, in, that kind of, in that kind of way rather than a defensive way and try to pick, pick enemies 
Yes, we're fine. We're to blame. We are to blame. The enemy is us. We are to blame. And we have to look at ourselves. That's the point. We have to look at ourselves and see what are we doing. Uh, are we enjoying some things, some things that we like, uh, even though they are killing other people? Are we enjoying things, even though people are working, tw- you know, how many hours a day in factories mm. that are dehumanizing for the things that we have? Mm. Uh, that's going on all over the world, and we are not looking at a lot of it. And and it's it's going to cause psychosis, you know, it's going to cause breaking out. People are going to be violent because they just can't contain it all, can't contain it anymore. But we have to look at ourselves. We can't just look at the individuals to blame. And I think that's the Jesus message. Jesus' psychology, I think, is very interesting and, and right on. He has been made invisible. People haven't wanted to look at his message. And so instead they've adored his person. Mm. They, have, they, have, uh, they have put him on such a high pedestal in order not to have to listen to the teaching because it's too difficult. It's a very challenging teaching. Mm. Love your enemies. How, you know, he says that, love your enemies. Well, who does that? <laughs> you know, give me an example of that. There are some spiritual people in the world who, who do that, but not a lot of us, not a lot of people who say that they follow him. Mm. They follow him, they have glorified him as a way to avoid his teaching, and yet he is his teaching. Mm. You know, you can't, if you don't follow that teaching, then, you know, what have you got? You've got your own, some, you're doing something to yourself. You're avoiding uh, the challenge of life. And that's what we have to do, I think. We, we maintain our souls by taking on the challenges that are very difficult. Uh, this has bothered me. You don't care of the soul. Some yes. people look at that as a sweet book. It's not a sweet book. It's a book of challenge. To be able to really care for your soul really means something uh, very, no, that, very challenging. That, the, the reason why, <clears throat> excuse me, the reason why I brought that book up in the beginning is because of its tough-mindedness. I mean, there are the cha- if you look in the chapter headings, there's a chapter called Gifts of Depression, which I imagine was controversial maybe when it came out. There's a chapter entitled Jealousy and Envy, Healing Poisons. So this, it's, you know... If you haven't read read that book, <laughs> I'd say go out and read it. It's a, it's it's a it's a it's an achievement. Um, so 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 you're talking about um, Jesus's message, but and my podcast is called Journey of an Esthete, and mm-hmm. your most recent book is about journey, the journey of life. Correct? Yes, um, I, yes, I guess so. So, what do you, any thoughts about ageless soul in your project project in that? Well, the main thing about uh, that book is that I, uh, it's for young and old because I see, I see aging. You have to hear this word. Aging can mean at least two different things. It okay. can mean getting old, like you're aging, uh-huh. getting old, or it can mean aging in the sense that you are becoming more mature, riper, uh-huh. uh, more capable, uh, more of an adult. You're actually getting somewhere, and. Uh, so I use the metaphor, you know, cheese or wine, that uh, aged cheese and aged wine means that it has its flavors have been brought out. It's better. It doesn't mean that it's just been hanging around for many years. You, you know, you don't, you don't want to go buy a piece of cheese that's just been lying in a, in a, right. you know, in a store somewhere for sure. 30 years. You want aged, which is a different thing. Uh-huh. Aged has to be done carefully and under certain circumstances. 
And it's the same with us. We age, we become riper, more of our, who we are capable of being. We grow up, we mature, ripen as people. That's aging as far as I can see. That's essentially what aging is. Mm-hmm. A lot of people grow old and they don't age. Talk so about that. Class, what, what, I'm sorry. What, what, so what would it mean for someone to grow old but without aging in this positive sense? What, what is an example of that you can think well, of? An example would be somebody who has gone through life and has only taken care of themselves and have never really taken on the challenges that life usually brings. Mm. Like maybe they, uh, they had opportunities to, to quit the job they were in to get something that was better. Or maybe they decided to compromise somewhere in life and work for someone who was doing essentially a business that was very unethical. Mm. And they just felt, well, I need to do it. I need the job. I need the money. Well, that's a choice. And those choices piled up on each other make for a life either you you really never become a person because you, you haven't taken the challenge. You've always just taken the easy way. When you get older, you're an old person, probably full of regrets and, and anger and not a very pleasant person, I would think. Mm. Um, and yet, uh, uh, you're old, but you haven't aged at all. You haven't aged along the, along the line of your life at all. I think I've had people like that. And uh, so, uh, on the other hand, people can age a great deal if uh, you made some tough decisions. I, I wrote a book on work once. And, I talked to a lot of people about their work, and mm-hmm. a lot of people have made difficult choices in life to, uh, to quit a job they were in that gave them security in order to take a risk. Well, those risks age you. They make you more uh, of a person. Mm-hmm. You've come somewhere. You've really lived rather than just floated along. And that aging then shows itself when you're an older person. You're a person of character. You are an elder then who can help young people. You can make a contribution to the world because you have aged. But if you haven't aged, if you just left it off mm-hmm. and take an easy path, you don't have much to offer at the end. Mm. Wow. I'm really happy I'm happy to hear you talk about that because that's, um, uh, that's something that there's a lot of... Um, Again, I, I guess I would say misinterpretation or misunderstanding. You know, people often use the word ageism or uh, um, an ageist, right, to discuss negative things that are said about people of a, of a certain physical age yes. or time-bound age. And, but maybe that doesn't fully capture the the rawness of that attitude. Maybe uh, so. Maybe, maybe maybe your book is a way forward, or maybe your your book is a way to get people talking about the span of a life in a way that has intelligence to it and has beauty and, and depth and, and, and soul in it. Well, you know, beauty is the whole thing. Uh, that's what I would say. It's more important to have a beautiful life than to have a healthy life. Huh. It's, uh, beauty is the important thing. What is a beautiful life? A beautiful life is where you have become a real person. Your individuality shines. Hillman says that... Uh, that aesthetics means uh, beauty is really the individuality of the thing showing itself. And it's not just the surfaces, it's, uh, it's the individuality particularly, the uniqueness coming through. And I think that's true of us as people. We become beautiful people uh, as you age. And you can see the beauty in people as they age, when they age well, because they've lived, they're really living. 
And uh, so uh, beauty is, I, I think, the essential thing. Yes, well, you know, my birthday is October 22nd. Oh, good. So you know that you're preaching to the choir if we're going to talk about astrology. Yes. <laughs> when well, you, my birthday is October 8th. So that's I'm right. So, so Libran power. Yes. Um, what do you, uh, so is there anything else uh, that you want to add or any questions you have or any, any things that pop into your head or your heart? This is, oh, I want to mention this or I want to... to um, Go into this detail or that detail? Anything come to your... Well, one thing that we haven't discussed is my book, Soulmates. I'm which, sorry. No, no, okay. no, don't be sorry. There are too, too many of those books out there. Uh, but uh, it's an issue that is important to many, many people about relationships. Well, let's talk about that, please, then. Yeah, yeah. the soul of the relationship, yep. I think, is a very important issue. Yes, and uh, and people are confused, and I think one of the reasons is uh, is that we haven't, most of us haven't had an opportunity to reflect on relationships. I don't understand why in school, in high school especially, we couldn't take some time to to prepare ourselves for marriage and for relationships. Uh, instead, what we do is affect everyone to work it out for themselves unconsciously. And that it doesn't work that way. You have to, you know, everything requires some skill and some reflection, some learning. I mean, learning is so important. So uh, we have to do our teaching much better and teaching for a relationship. And one of the simple things that's so obvious is to see that relationship is not really about happiness. It's not about just being making the, the people happy and that they found someone who's going to make them happy. But that it's, it's an invitation to live, to live this challenging life in a shared way. And that is not about being happy all the time. That's about uh, uh, being willing to be with someone who will be your companion as you make difficult choices and go through things that are great challenges and initiations in life like illness or trying to find a career or losing a job or the, the inclination to move from one place to another. Moving, yep. these, are, these, are, these are major uh, initiations in life. That, uh, they take us from one phase to another. They age us. Mm. You go through an initiation carefully, you've aged. It's so important. So we have a companion for that, and that's very different from uh, looking for, to the other person for happiness or for our own fulfillment somehow. That's... Uh, you can't be narcissistic in entering a relationship. We have to be able to look at that kind of thing and know what to expect and, and enjoy, also enjoy the other person as they go through their journey and have to deal with so many things themselves. And you can be the companion and support them in that journey, which is a great satisfaction. So you, you saw, I'm sorry, go ahead. What were we going to say? I, that's it. Oh, so you saw uh, your book as a way of trying to to heal or or, or trying to um, correct an imbalance in the way people regarded their relations with other people. That people regarded their relations with other pe people and either as something only utilitarian that is something you just got to do because that's what people do in a very shallow way, right? That's one. Yes. kind of one mistake you can make or maybe too too lofty a way I, I don't know it seems like that yeah 
Yeah, I can see a lot. Well, I called the book soulmates. I understood and I understand very well that the word soulmate for a lot of people means this finding this one person in the whole world mm-hmm. to satisfy you. Well, that's an interesting. I like that idea because it brings fate into a relationship, and fate plays a very important role. And you have to be there ready to deal with your fate. Mm-hmm. And when someone enters your life. Uh, to deal with it effectively and constructively, creatively. Um, but on the other hand, I also hear the word soulmates, meaning that whenever we have a mate, uh, a friend, a life partner, that the soul is involved. It's all about the soul, soulmate. Mm. It's, it's, it means that uh, together we are going to work on each other's souls. We're going to let our souls, uh, we're going to help each other as we uh, let our souls uh manifest themselves in a life as we age. And when you say soul, you mean something that we are in, not just some part of, right? Is that, is that yes, just some part of Yes, it's really hard to say. It's, what I mean by that is that we have a, a depth to us. Uh, we have something in us, and also we are in something that is, uh, um, that is beyond understanding, but it really accounts for our for our fate and our um, our emotion and a sense of meaning in life, which is so important. So we are trying to care for that depth of, of who we are, not just the surfaces of our life, but that depth, and also the depth of the other person as they do it. And that means that we have we are we are we are with someone, a soulmate, but someone we're with and whose soul is different from ours. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't even know what their soul is all about. They're trying to figure it out as they go. And so we have to allow their mystery, allow them to explore and to make some mistakes and to uh, find their way. And if we can do that as a companion, mm-hmm. I think that's the, the best kind of relationship. Wow, that's a, that's a um, great place to... Uh, Best place, mystery. So allowing the mystery of another person uh, to to come forward. I I sometimes think that people are afraid of mysteries or they think that mysteries are are, are mysteries synonymous with solution. Do you get that sense? Well, mystery presents the thought of solution. If you talk about mystery, people think, how can I solve that mystery? Yeah. That's not the point. The point is to live with the mystery mm-hmm. and to live with these great mysteries of life, one of which is uh, love and companionship. And another might be uh, illness and mortality. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are great mysteries in our world, in our, in, in our lives as we go. Certain basic ones, I think just a few really big ones. And, and having a mystery of the other person with us as a companion, it's a great mystery, and it's never to be understood, never to be resolved, but to be lived as openly and generously as possible. Well, Thomas More, um, I'm really thankful that you shared your time on my show. And I I'm, I'm, I'm actually have a lot of gratitude that we discussed some of these issues. Um, they might actually be more pressing now than at other times, and and so I want to thank you for that. Um, do, is there anything else you you want to say, or anything that uh, comes to your mind about either about uh, your work or life, or about? Sure, I could I could you know I could be a little commercial for a moment. Uh, okay, I, I'm uh, I'm seventy eight and soon to be 
to turn 79. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think about my age too much. I don't like to live by numbers. So I just go along as though I'm still 42. That's my That's thing. That's right. So um, I travel a great deal, and I, I, uh, I love people to meet up with me and talk about these things. Um, and you can find them on my website, which is uh, thomasmoresoul.com. Yeah. Thomas More Soul. And uh, I, uh, I've started a, uh, an e-course where I'm actually teaching as much of this as I can. And it lasts about a year hmm. with breaks in between, like about a four-week break between each session. And uh, I've, done, I've done one session now. And I just uh, I feel so strongly about that. Okay. I've, always, I've always been a teacher. And I, I, I really... Yeah. That's right. So I'm really interested in getting these ideas out so other people can teach them and, and make them present in the world. Well, that's beautiful. Well, I'm going to try to link up to that. That's very important uh, when, I, when we we'll publish this, uh, this show. Thank so you. I will, I will do that. And anything else, any other ideas you have, uh, I will um, try to honor those as well. But again, thank many thanks for, for going on the journey of an esthete with me. Fellow esthete. Fellow esthete and... Um, <laughs> and fellow Epicurean, I think. Yes, yes, Epicurean. Um, so thank you, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I, I appreciate the work you're doing very much. That's why I'm here. I appreciate it so much. And we have a lot in common. Yes. So I feel very good and really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. I enjoyed it too. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay. Thank you.